Good morning, Valley View Christian family. It's great to be here and to be with all of you wonderful people, and especially all of you out there that are online. And I just, uh, I'm just so happy. I came here with a team of business leaders uh, from Canada, from the United States. We're doing a conference called Doing Business God's Way. But I'm also here to just be with and to love on Pastor Apostle Greg Williamson and his lovely bride, Pastor Susie. And i um, just here to wash the feet of all of you out here with the Word of God. And so, and I also want to rep let you know that I represent the International Coalition of Apostolic Leaders and representing over 3,000 leaders throughout the world, which represents between 80 to 100,000 churches throughout the world. And with all of that said, how many of you are ready for the Word of God this morning? Are you ready for the Word? We're going to be reading out of a very common verse that many of you have heard. You may, you've heard probably several sermons on this, and it's in Habakkuk chapter 1, uh, ch uh, chapter 2, excuse me, and we're going to be beginning in verse 1, and uh, so I want you to get there in your Bibles. Uh, you know, we can call this the, the sword of the Lord, and, uh, but it's the Word of God. We want to go into Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1, and... And here we meet Habakkuk, and Habakkuk is very young at this point, and we know that, that Habakkuk died a very old man, and the last chapters of, uh, of the book of Habakkuk are written when he's in his late 60s and early 70s, and so he's had a long life as a prophet. But here we're meeting him, and he's literally somewhere between the ages of 18 and maybe 22 years of age. And he's not only bivocational, he's trivocational. Because at the age of 13, he entered into the workforce and became an apprentice stonecutter. And he began to be what's called a stonemason, building walls, building houses, building businesses of commerce, even, even working on the temple of Jerusalem. But he also began to emerge in his early teens also as a prophet and he began to emerge as a prophet and here we see him whether he's 18 or 22 and he's already functioning as a prophetic voice in the city of Jerusalem but as we meet him here he's also into his third vocation and that is as a soldier on the wall of Jerusalem he's literally a soldier in the army of God on the city of Jerusalem. And he says this, I will stand upon my watch. This is after the midnight hour. This is being written right at the beginning of dawn. This is when this event is occurring. And he's a watchman on the wall of Jerusalem. And what he's looking for is he's watching out for the Assyrian army that is in the dark, they're camped within a mile or two of the city of Jerusalem. He can hear their noises. He can hear their shouts, their screams. He can hear them talking, mumbling. He can hear the rustling of, of their horses. He can hear. He can smell their fires. And he knows their equipment is being moved into place. And that just at the beginning of dawn, the attack will come. 
and they are greatly outnumbered, the army of Jerusalem. And it's already been predicted by many that they will run over the walls of Jerusalem. And so here he is in the most dangerous position of a soldier that night on the walls of Jerusalem. And he says, I'll stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower. And what's happened here, he's not only on the wall, he's on the tower. And the tower, as you know, is, is always on a corner. And the towers are higher than the wall. And they are the, literally the most dangerous position to be in is the tower. Because all of the first hours, arrows of attack will be aimed at the men in the tower. Because the idea, and they will be shot by the arrows before dawn. Because they have to shoot them so they don't blow the shofar to sound the alarm. How many of you know that shofars are blowing in the cities, come on, of this world today? Shofars are blowing. And God said to Moses in Numbers 10, he said that he would have built two shofars. And one was for the blowing of worship and one was for the blowing of warfare. And I believe that the church is in a, is in a point right now of between. We were, we're between the blowing of the shofars, where God has been blowing the shofar for worship. Just as God has restored the priestly mantle to the church, and now he's restoring the kingly mantle to the church. And so what that means is now the shofar is about to blow for war. But you cannot, but the problem is we don't want to hear about war, do we? But that first attack will be on those that sound the alarm. And so all of the enemy, whether it's Satan, whether it's, whether it's secular, whatever that, that is coming from, they don't want to hear that alarm blown, that warning given. And so he's in the tower, and then here's what happens to him. He knows that this is the end. He knows that this is the night that he'll die. Is this very night. He will not live probably even into the dawn because at least 10 to 50 arrows will be aimed at him. And yet, something transpires. This is a man without hope. This is a man that has no vision to live the next hour or two. Some of you out here and some of you that are listening in may feel like you're in a place of no future, no hope. You may be in a crisis. You may feel like you're in confusion. Whatever it is that you feel, that's where you are. But somehow, in the midst of his fear, how many of you ever felt fear? Hello? I can remember as a young man when people would say, whether it was getting into a boxing ring or whether it was playing football or whether it was even into some com combat, you know, are you afraid? No, I'm not afraid. You sure? No, I'm feeling good. Now, the problem was my stomach was afraid, but I was okay. Hello? And, some, and there was something going on in my legs where they were kind of funny feeling, like a little shaken feeling. But they were afraid, I discovered. But my legs and my stomach, but me, I'm fine. I was so fine, I was super fine. Hello? 
No, I know I know what it is to be afraid. I know what it is to even be what's called petrified. That's beyond fear. That's when you think somebody can hear you breathe 100 yards away. That's when you think your heart is pounding so hard, hello, that somebody 10 feet away can hear your heart pounding. That's called petrified. I've been there. And here's this young man, and who knows what stage of fear that he's in. But remember, he's also a man of faith. And he goes into what some of us may call a Holy Ghost moment. He goes into the presence of God at that very moment. And the Holy Ghost moment is an incredible thing because when you're in the presence of God and you sense the presence of God, and the way you get into the presence of God is by an act of faith, and it's about a a step of prayer, of, of supplication. It's about praying with an emotional drive to touch God. And when that happens, something else begins to transpire. And you begin to sense his presence is there with you. And I call that a Holy Ghost moment, and so do many others. And it's whether it could be a minute, and one minute in the presence of God could seem like an hour of download from heaven. One hour in the presence of God could seem like one minute of a download from heaven. Hello? Never waste a moment in the presence of God without hearing from him. And so here he is, and he's, he enters into this, and he comes into where he knows God is with him. He knows God is there, and he says, and I will watch to see what he'll say to me. Now think about that. He says, I will watch. He didn't say, I will intently listen. I'll I'll listen and take notes. He said, I'll watch to see. And that is a key word. What he'll say to me and what I shall answer when I'm reproved. How I will respond. How I will respond to what he says to me. And then he goes on and he says, And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision. Now here's the point. You listen to what he said. I will watch to see what he said. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound right at all. Any school teacher would tell you, Don't be watching, be listening. Don't just listen, write. But he's saying, I'll watch. Why? Because you will always remember what you see and hardly remember what you hear. And so that's why he says this. There's some of you today, you'll go out an hour or two from now, you'll be sitting down with somebody, and you'll say, well... I heard, a, I heard a message today uh, from, uh, it was on, from uh, Habakkuk, and they'll say, well, how was it? Well, uh, uh, it, it was okay. But, uh, what was it about? I'm not sure. Uh, I, I, I can't remember right now. And so what Habakkuk is saying here, watch it, watch it, see it. He, he's saying that I watch to see because your mind is like a photo album. And the more you can see something, the more you can visualize it, the more you'll remember it. 
I travel all over the world. And one of the things that you receive when you travel all over the world is images of everywhere you've been. How many of you, you know, when you say someone's name, the first thing that comes into your mind when someone says a name of somebody you're familiar with or know is you see them. You see them from the last time you experienced them. And so that's what he's saying here. And so it's so important. And then it says, write the vision and make it plain upon tables. Now, for many years, I would write these vision statements. Not mission statements, but vision statements of pictures, of, of things that God had showed me, and, and prophetic words, and dreams, and all of these things. And I, I'd write them down. And then I'm kind of a high-D personality, always going, moving, you know, and, and I'd lose them. i just forget where I put it. And it's like, well, I guess I lost that dream. I lost that vision. Or, or and then I started putting them in notebooks. But then we would move to another house, and it's like, well, what box did the vision go in? <laughs> and that one was gone. And so I began to realize that, wait a minute. This isn't talking about writing words down. It's talking about drawing a picture of about what's to come into your life, what's to come in, what you're about to experience. And it can be, you know, and dreams come in many forms. I mean, uh, how many of us ever had a nightmare? Hmm? Well, guess what? When you have a nightmare, what do you do? Wake up! Rebuke it. Go to the bathroom and get a tum. How many, how many have ever had a, a bad dream? Bad dream is when you eat chicken wings late at night or, or pizza with pepperoni. And you wake up. What do you do with a bad dream? Just wake up. Go to the bathroom and get four tums. That's what you do with a bad dream. But then there's a good dream. What do you do with a good dream? Keep on dreaming. Last night I was dreaming. Last night I was playing defensive end. Mm-hmm. I was 19 years old. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. And what was really wonderful was I never made one mistake. I was destroying everybody out there. I was twisting. I was turning. I was leaping. I was doing everything. It was amazing. I never did things like that when I was really 19. It was incredible. Why would you want to stop a dream like that? Now, you do wake up a little tired, but that was the dream I had. And that was a good dream, but then there's a God dream. And a God dream will absolutely change your life forever. Forever. A God dream. And... There are dreams, too, where God is showing you something, whether it be a car, whether it be a house, whatever. It can be that simple. But whether it's a, a dream about a house or whether it's a dream about a car or it's a dream from God that will change the entire course of your life, the entire course of your vocation, the entire course of your existence. That's what a God dream does. Probably close to 35, 37 years ago, 
I was in an inner city church. Probably about a thousand people or more. And I walked off the platform and came back in front of the platform. And I was walking to the pastor's office. And a woman grabbed me by my coat. And I looked at her. And she was sitting right at the end of a row. And she got up. She had on shoes that were too big. She had on something that I think she thought was a dress. She had makeup that was kind of all wrong. It looked like she put lipstick on her cheeks as well as her lips. And she probably weighed 90-some pounds, probably about the size of one of my legs today. And she was about this tall. She was missing some teeth. And all of a sudden, three little boys gathered around her. And as she grabbed me, she put her head right here and she started crying. This little black woman. And she looked to me like someone in there probably, probably close to 50. And as she was crying, this disheveled woman, I can tell she was in much poverty, much distress. And she said, you said about a dream. Now, honestly, I did not minister anything that I remember about a dream that morning. But she said, you said something about a dream. And she said, but I had a dream and I lost it. And just then the one boy put both of his feet right there on that foot and put his head right here and wrapped his arms around me and held on tight. The other boy, he was a little bit bigger and he started punching me right here. And the other one started, he got in front of me and started screaming, don't touch my mommy, I'll kill you, I hate you. Get away from my mommy. And I, start, I said, could you walk with me? And she said, yes. And I said five things to her that very morning. And I went to begin to speak to her these five things. And these three ladies got around here. And they said, don't be bothering that man of God about some dream you got. Hello? You got three babies to take care of. You need to get your life straight. And I said, let's talk about the dream. And these five things, I know it was just the Holy Ghost just pouring them out of me. Is it all right if I share with you what I share with her, which took about 10 minutes, but with you it'll take a lot longer because she got the outline, but you're going to get the content. The first thing I said to her, you had a dream. Yes, I had a dream, but I lost it. And I said, listen, it is impossible to lose a dream because a dream is an image in your mind that never leaves. No, no, you don't understand. I lost it. I said, how'd you lose the dream? Now, I was sorry I asked her. And she said, I was an honor student till sixth grade, and a group of boys attacked me in the housing project where we lived. 
and she said, I left school, and she said, by the time I was eighth grade, I was a full-fledged prostitute and drug addict. And she said, and now, she said, I'm 21 years old. And these three boys, I don't know if they have three fathers or they have one father or two fathers. She said, but they're my babies. And she said, I've been off drugs now for a couple weeks. And she said, I've been with Jesus all that time. And she said, I've just now came to church. But she said, I have no dream. I have no future. I have no life. Neither do my babies. And I said, honey, it is impossible to lose a dream. I said, tell me about the dream you lost. And she said, well, she said, ever since I was probably in kindergarten, all I wanted to do was be a nurse. She said, I would have dreams of this black woman in white nylons and white shoes and a white skirt and a white blouse with a, with a little white hat with a red cross. And she said, I have dreams of it, but I've lost the dream. It's destroyed. It'll, my life is destroyed. I can never be anything. I said, honey, as long as you have a dream, you have a destiny. And that dream is the proof of your destiny. But I said, here's the amazing thing. Every dream you have, whether it's a good dream, could be a car, could be a house, or a dream that will totally change your life and change your future. Even your identity will be changed. That kind of a dream has a price. And that price is called sacrifice. And without sacrifice, if you're not willing to pay the price, the dream will never come into fulfillment. And I said, for that dream to take place, you're going to have to work day and night. You're going to have to go to school. And you're going to have to have a job at the same time. You're going to be on buses and, and you're going to be you're going to be crying because you're so tired. You'll be falling asleep every moment you get. That's what that dream demands. And she said, I will. And I said, the reason why you will is the second key of the dream to destiny. And that key is this. Is it must stir passion. Because passion is the emotion that God gives you to empower you to pursue your destiny, to pursue your dreams. And, but the kind of passion that you're to have has to be a God kind of passion. And the Bible tells us we're to love what God loves, but we're also to hate what God hates. And you may be doing really great at loving, but how are you doing at hating? And so... So the thing is this, is that if for her to become that nurse, she had to love people. And she had to love people that were in desperation, that were in sickness, people that were physically broken, people that were, that were suffering in, in many different ways. And, and she, had to, she had to have that kind of a compassion and empathy but at the same time, she had to hate the suffering. 
She had to hate the disease. She had to hate that. Because without that passion, there's no fulfillment of the destiny. And when God gives you a dream, see, the reason why I know a lot of people did not really get a word from God in that prophecy, or really, it may not be the prophet's fault either, or may not, uh, uh, that, um, they may not got it, even whether it was a, a made-up dream or a God dream, is because no passion. No passion, no pursuit. No pursuit, no fulfillment. No fulfillment, no destiny. But then the other thing I share with her was the importance of focus. You've got to be focused. You've got to keep your eye on the prize, the Bible tells us. Keep your eye on the throne. It's important that, that you know how to focus. 16 years old. My father. Summer was beginning. He said, boy, you're going to work. Took me to Syracuse, New York. From our home in New Jersey. My father was a structural iron worker. Built bridges. One of them, Tappan Sea, Verrazano Narrows, Frog's Neck, Whitestone. Bridges, biggest bridges in the world, biggest bridges in America. My dad, he built a bridge down in, uh, we went over it last night in uh, not, uh, Newburgh. So you're familiar with that, that's why I'm saying that. And so I had to climb iron, I was 16 years old. And I didn't know how to climb iron, I didn't know how to walk a steam, but steel beam. And they had this steel beam. And the steel beam was about six inches wide on the ground. And a young Indian from what was called the St. Regis Indian Reservation, upstate New York. He was only about two years older than me. He was only 18 years old, Clyde Craig. I think it's called ONSing now. And he came and he said, your father said for me to teach you how to walk on the steel. And he said, man that don't walk right on earth can't walk in the sky. Now there's a spiritual lesson. And he said, man who walk like a duck can't walk on iron, don't even try. And he said, man that walk crooked can't walk on the iron. He said, man that walk all fancy can't walk on the iron. He said, they fall, they die. So I said, well, how do you walk on the iron? He said, straight feet, straight feet. I said, okay. So he said, get on the beam. So I, I got on the beam. I'm looking for a line here. Here's a line I found. So I get on the beam, and I start like this. He says, stop. And I said, why? He said, because you're looking at where you are. And he said, if you look at where you are, you will fall. And I said, well, I'm trying not to fall. That's why I'm looking where I am. And he said, no. He said, you can't look at where you are. You have to look at where you're going. I said, yeah, but this thing's six inches wide. It's going to be up in the sky. How am I going? He said, look. He said, put your foot there. Get on the beam. All right, so I get on the beam. And he said, now, 
Just look, put your head up, and just look right there. Point your nose right there, and that's where you walk. And you will walk it perfectly straight. Wow. He said, your feet won't land perfect every time, but your walk will be perfect. And in other words, where you focus determines where you're going. Hello? Apostle Prophet Greg was a great quarterback in high school. And they ran the option. I was a defensive end. My job was to always get that quarterback on that option. And the, re- and the way to get them is not watch the way their body was moving, but where was their eye looking? Because where they were focused is where they were going. Is anybody here? And so it's really important because when you look at where you are, you'll say, well, you know what? I'm too old. Well, I'm too young. I'm, I'm not educated. I'm too educated. I got too much experience. I don't have enough experience. Hello? You'll find everything wrong with yourself and hardly anything right with yourself when all you do is focus on yourself. And where you, where, I'm talking about where you are. You'll find objections. Well, our family, well, we don't do... Hello? You'll find, well, nobody from this area... Come on. You'll find all kinds of objections because you're not focused on the dream. You're focused on where you are. And see, a dream is very interesting. But the other thing I I shared was out of Corinthians chapter 5, and I just paraphrase it, and it's like the Lord said, it's like Paul said, you have 10,000 mentors but only a few fathers. And we need to focus on those 10,000 mentors. Every life, every one of you that's, that's listening to me right now, by the time you're my age, you're going to need thousands and thousands of mentors. Thousands and thousands of mentors. Every teacher you had, every coach you had, every sergeant you had, they were mentors. And none of them were committed to your failure. The only one ever committed to failure in my life was me, not them. Every book, not necessarily fiction, but, but you can get some things out of fiction, but, but every, every book that you read is a mentor. That's nonfiction. Every, for sure, that is. In every, in every CD or tape that you listen to that's instructional of any way, shape, or form is a mentor in your life. You can never have enough mentors. I'm in my mid-70s, going to my late 70s, and I'll tell you right now, I'm looking for mentors. I'm going through a search right now where I'm just searching some things from some old theologians, and I'm trying to dig out some treasures because I need some mentoring in my life right now in that area of life. There's some other things in life that I'm, I'm looking at having to do with with physicality, with health and all, because I need mentoring in that area. You will always need, not a mentor, you will always need mentors, major and minor in your life. Some of them, and many of them will be temporal. Hello? You may only have one father, spiritual, or even as a mentor in your life, but 
you will still need all those mentors. Some mentors are in your life for five minutes, and some are in your life for five months, and some for five years, and some for 50. But you will need that in your life in order to fulfill God's dream for your destiny. The other thing is, friends, friends, you have to be careful of those that are around you, especially when you begin to tell your dream. Joseph had an incredible dream. He had a dream of total destiny for him, his brothers, his family, and for a nation of people. And in this dream, he began to, he was so excited he couldn't wait to tell his family. And when he told them, those brothers picked him up and threw him in a well. Hello? And when he, once he was relieved from the well, he went to another country. He was thrown into a prison before he ever got to a palace. But he kept on holding on to that dream. He knew that that dream would someday be fulfilled. You have to be careful who you share your dream with. Because the moment you begin to tell others of your dreams, you will meet a dream destroyer. Are you sure? Are you sure God told you that? You sure that wasn't pizza that night with pepperoni? Hello? Are, are, how are you going to do that? I mean, look at you. You're too old. You're too young. Look, you're too fat. You're too skinny. You're too educated. You're not educated enough. You're too experienced. You're not experienced enough. The voice of the doubters come along immediately. And many of them are your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, your aunt, and your uncle, and your nephews, and your cousins. And, what, and the problem is, some of you are more loving than God, and that's absolutely weird. Because Jesus said, when you go out there, and they don't receive you, you cast the dust off your feet and you move on. So when you have to realize there are people that are, that are surrounded around you right now that celebrate you, tolerate you, and hate you. But you, and how do you discover them? Well, give them just a hint of your dream, and you'll start discovering who they are. And sometimes, you're just going to have to say, talk to the dream, because I don't hear you. Talk to the hand. Hello? I don't hear it. And there's some people in your life you're going to have to say, bye, bye, goodbye. And some, you're just going to have to ignore them for a moment, a day, a week, a month, a year, forever. Because they want to pull you back into their mess. And so, I wrote a book with Paul Costa. He, he, he's now passed, and some of you men may, re may remember him. He was all pro many times with the Buffalo Bills. And he and I wrote a book, and uh, on that book it was called Power to Get Wealth. And in that book, he found two interesting things. He was more of a researcher than I, and he found two things. One was a study having to do with lotto winners, and that 
Those that won over a million dollars, 80% of them would be broke within seven years. Even if they won 10 million, 100 million. And then he discovered the same thing true of NFL ball players, of which he was one, AFL and NFL. And he found it was the same thing true of NBA basketball players, major and minor league baseball players, NHL hockey players, and European soccer players, South American and African soccer players. It was the same statistics. And the politically correct answer is lack of financial management knowledge. That is 100% true. Matter of fact, there's a man in my audience right now that's a professional trainer in the financial area. He's, rec he's, he's certified with the NFL and to, to do that to, to the teams, to the players. But, but the thing is this, but how, how does that happen too? Part of it is lack of financial education, but the other is family and friends. Because all of a sudden, crazy Uncle Harry shows up and he's got a vision for a, for a restaurant. Hello? He's never been a dishwasher. He's never been a waiter. He's never been a cook, a chef. He's never, he's never been a host. And yet, he is going to need a million dollars for this phenomenal restaurant. And you're going to wind up not a million dollars, but three million dollars broke at the end because you've just now handed over your money to somebody that knows less than you do of what to do with it. And so I was sharing with her, you have to move from those people that are the dream destroyers. And then it goes on here and tells us, make it plain Upon the tables he may run that readeth it. That's the passion that gives you the power to run with it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. What I learned about dreams and visions is I stopped writing them down and I started drawing them. I started drawing them. I started cutting out pictures. I, I saw a picture of a house and, and, and a dream and it had a turret like a castle on it. So a couple of weeks later, I saw a picture in a magazine of this builder that was building houses in our region, and one of them had a castle tore it out. I cut it out, and a year and a half later, I'm in that house. Praise God. I saw a picture of a car, Cadillac Eldorado, mm -hmm. 1972. Same kind of car that was in the movie Superfly, all the gangster movies back in the, back in the day, back in the 60s. And I wanted that car. I'm a Jersey guy. That's a Newark car. And I wanted that car. And I had a dream about it. And I, I told everybody I had that car. And I had some spiritual sons. Two of them are in the audience today. And, and, and these sons, and they, they put up finances. And they, they, bought that, they bought a car. It was banged up, beat up. It was that model. And we've had it restored. And today there's that car. Hello? And I'm not, I'm not saying that. The, all I'm saying is, is that if you picture it and you see that picture often and often enough, it'll drive you to your destiny. And you see, when a, when a dream doesn't come true, it doesn't come to pass like that car 
or that house all the time where there it is in the fullness. Many times a dream is like a picture puzzle. Hello? My wife does. She loves these complicated picture puzzles. They drive me nuts. And she'll, and I'll see this beautiful picture on this box, and then she'll, she'll take the lid off, and she'll drop it on a table, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, where do you start? And she starts with one piece. One piece, and this thing's got a couple thousand pieces, some of these things. They're crazy. They're like this big. And she will do something every day on that thing. And I start seeing that little edge here and a little edge there and a little something here. And next thing, this thing's coming together. And eventually, there's the picture. It has come to pass. The vision will come to pass. He's about to die. And he's getting a lifetime dream, a lifetime vision. Amazing. Some years ago, I was in the same city, flew into the same city where I met that young woman. Only this time, I, I didn't minister in the inner city church. I was in the suburbs, much salt, smaller church. This church was also an African-American, charismatic-type church. And maybe a church of about 500, but one of the most influential churches in this major city because it was made up of doctors, lawyers, school teachers, nurses. Uh, it was made up of independent business people, car dealers. And this little woman came up to me, and she just had this beautiful round face, this tall, very round, white hair, this beautiful black grandmom. And she came up and said, remember me? And she grabbed my coat. She said, remember me? And I thought, dear God, I am in trouble because I don't remember her. I have never seen this woman in my life. And I don't want to hurt her feelings, but Lord, help me. And she said, this is my boy. And all of a sudden, this young man comes up be behind her, and he's about six foot four and about 300 and some pounds. And he's standing there behind her. And she said, do you remember him? And I'm going, now I'm really in trouble because this guy is looking down at me. And, and he said, he said, I don't remember you. And I'm like, oh, thank God. You know, I don't have to deal with him now. And he says, but, he said, my mama tells me when I put my feet on your foot in my head right here. And I thought, this is him? And, she, and then all of a sudden, I knew who she was. She was that woman. She was the young prostitute with the children the young drug addict with the children, just overcame just those, those terrible things. All alone, here she was. And she goes, I have a story to tell you. Can I tell you all the story? The story was this. She said within three weeks, 
I became a cleaning lady at a major hospital in our city. And she said, and I worked there for six months cleaning. And then I discovered that they had a, a school for nurses. And the lady that's over the cleaning lady said, you know, you're smart enough to go to that school, but you still got to work full day, and they have night school and weekends. And she, and she said, I can work your schedule out so that you can do that. She said, would you want to go? And she said, yeah, but I'm not ready to be an RN. She said, no, no, honey. No, no, you're going to be uh, what's called a, a licensed practical nurse. And so that's what she became. It took her a couple years to become that. And then she became that, and then she went through the same process at that school, and she became over six years it took her. Normally it takes people three years. It took her six years to become an RN. Then she went to school and got a BA. Then she went back to school, and she got her master's in public administration from a major university, and she said, today... She said, today I am the chief of all staff of that hospital, all but the medical, all but the, all, all but the doctors. She said, I'm over all the administration of the entire hospital. And I said, you are? And she said, yes. She said, it is the largest hospital in our state, the largest hospital in our city. She said, I'm doing six, six figures. I'm about to retire. And, she, and, and, and she said, this is my son. And she said, he's in, he's in college at the university on a full football scholarship. He doesn't know whether to be a, a doctor or a lawyer. She said, remember the one that was punching you? And I said, yes. And she said, he went to the same university on a football scholarship. He graduated, played for the Detroit Lions for one year. And she said, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a, a lawyer today and she said remember the big one I said yes yeah. said he went to the same school played for the Detroit Lions also and she said and he got hurt got injured went back to school and today he is an orthopedic surgeon in my hospital and she and I said mama they are what they are because you are what you are because mama you're a dream walking and they realize that every dream that they have has a destiny because if mama could do it, if mama could sacrifice, if mama had the passion and the drive, if mama had the focus, if mama knew the importance of the mentors in her life, if mama knew to break away from those that were holding her back, so do they. Because, Mama, you're the greatest education those boys have ever had. You're the greatest mentor that they've ever had. You're the father, you're the mother that they never had. You're the example of a dream walking. You're an example of a dream with a destiny. And I pray over each and every one of you today that you will have a dream with a destiny. And the apostle says here, as he's writing this prophet, says here, the visions for an appointed time. It will come to pass your dream. It is a Kairos moment, an appointed time when it shall come into the fulfillment, totality. And not only that, 
but at the end it shall speak and it shall not lie. Her dream spoke to those three boys. Those three boys with no father. Those three boys with no future, no destiny. And it gave them the drive that their mother had to a destiny. And it spoke to them. Because it not only speaks to the possessor and the achiever of the dream, but all of those that go with them in that destiny, in that journey. And it shall not lie, though it tarry. Wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. It shall come to pass. But remember, remember, you've got to sacrifice. You've got to have that passion, that drive. You've got to stay focused. And at the same time, you've got to receive from many mentors. It is impossible to fulfill it without that. You need those. And also, at the same time, you have to understand there are people in your life that if they're a dream destroyer, if they're trying to pull you back, keep on keeping on. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for each and every one here to have that dream, that destiny dream, Lord God, and have the passion to fulfill it, Lord God. Well, I thank you, Father. Bless them, each and every one, today. For these are dreamers about to come into a destiny. In Jesus' name, amen.